Welcome to the first live edition of the Science of Politics podcast. I am Matt Grossman, and I am speaking on behalf of the Niskanen Center. And joining me today is G. Elliot Morris, who is the the pride of the Texas government department and uh, the data journalist at The Economist. And we are speaking to you the day after the election on only a few hours of sleep, so forgive that. Uh, but uh, it's an exciting uh, day to talk about uh, polling and uh, modeling election outcomes and uh, how everything fared. So, Elliot, I think the, the big question from last night is how we should be evaluating uh, what looks like a pretty sizable polling error, maybe about three points on average in, across swing states, and how we should be thinking about how the, the models and the polls performed, given that. Well, you're right. Um, the polls seem to have missed quite a lot of Trump support, especially in heavily white working class counties, but also in a bit of a shakeup of the 2016 era in areas with lots of Hispanics and and even in sort of African-American heavy precincts. Um, uh, the only real place where the polls looked like they're hitting their targets is in suburban areas with lots of white college educated voters. Um, it looks like states like Georgia and Texas are pretty close to what we expected, at least at the presidential race. Um, while, uh, while, right, while the, the upset in Florida certainly being the most notable, uh, uh, polling error, um, with polls also wrong, right, in, in the Midwest by quite a lot, almost enough to really make the, the models sort of wrong on the wrong side of 50-50. So how are you thinking about it? I mean, you know, night, night before the election, I think you had a 96% chance that uh, that Biden was going to win, which he still looks like he, he will, and a 70 or so percent chance that the Dems were going to take the Senate, which it don't, doesn't look like they, they will. So, so how should we evaluate uh, the, the model and modeling and polling in general, given, given those results? Yeah, let's just keep the presidency on our focus now. My colleague actually is the one who did our Senate model, so let's sort of deal with that a bit later. Um, our uh, our presidential model looks to have the result inside its confidence interval. So, you know, we gave a 95% chance of Biden winning more than 259 electoral votes, and it looks like he'll get, or 249, sorry, and it looks like he'll get 290 or maybe 306 if he can pull out a win in Pennsylvania. So that's inside our range of predictions, right? Which is good. You know, one way to read the model um, is to say, oh, like we're super confident in a Biden victory, right? We gave him a 97% chance. The other way to think about it is that uh, our model uh, told us that Biden would probably win the election, even under the case of a large systematic bias in the polls, perhaps even larger in 2000 than in 2016, and that looks to be exactly what's happening. Uh, you know, that's kind of a it's kind of almost a cop out answer, right? But probabilistically, uh, we said Joe Biden's lead was so large that um, that that even a two times polling error from 2016 wouldn't be enough to help Trump, um, and it looks like that's what's going to shape up. So part of what uh, you and everyone else have to do is, is figure out uh, what the, the distribution of polling errors looks like. And we only have a certain number uh, of elections, but we do have a, a few now where there has been a sub substantial uh, polling error. And it looks, at least from the early results, like this is in the same direction as 2016 and 2018 in the same t types of states and areas. Um, what what can we learn uh, from from that? Is there sort of a broader directional problem uh, with polling, uh, or uh, a or should we be less confident in our models given given those errors? I think yes to both your questions. So here's the really troubling thing: uh, if you took the polling error in each state in 2016 and tried to predict the 2020 error, you'd explain nearly half of the variance in the polling error, right? That's a correlation like close to uh, 0.3 almost. That's really high and it's troubling for pollsters because it points to them having systematic problems that they haven't solved since 2016. In fact, the problems seem to be a bit worse this time with polling error uh, on average, close to two points on the Democratic uh, two-party vote share versus one point or one and a half points in 2016. That's, again, uh, really pretty troubling um, uh, if you're a pollster, especially if we've spent the last four years or so um, 
uh, the last the last four years trying to reckon with the fact that polls weren't uh, uh, sampling enough non-college white voters or were missing Trump supporters in other ways. I mean, if polls have started waiting by uh, education, um, clearly that's not the answer anymore. So they have a big reckoning ahead of them. And how about in sort of telling us where to focus? I mean, I guess a baseline I would use is just a, a uniform swing. So if we just thought that, um, you know, the Democrats were going to do, you know, five points better nationally, and they really only did two or three points better, it seems like we would get a, a pretty similar distribution of results um, that, that we got this time. Um, how well, I guess, did, did adding in that pre-election polling to that just sort of general national trend kind of help us figure out which states we should be focused on? Yeah, in terms of the polling error, one way to think about it is what a model based on the fundamentals and uniform national swing would have predicted. And uh, our fundamentals had Trump winning by five, sorry, Biden winning by five points, um, which would have translated to a bare electoral college majority. That seems like what we're going to get. And so from a sort of added information point of view, that means the polls aren't really telling us much about electoral politics that we can't figure out based on these uh, these theories of, of the electorate, which I guess um, causes some reconsideration for how we are parameterizing these forecasting models, right? And was, I mean, did we get a sense of, you know, Arizona was, you know, more likely uh, than Iowa or anything? I mean, was there any kind of sense in which the having that polling data kind of told us that th- how things would be different from 2020 rather than just they'd, they'd move nationally? Uh, different from 2016? Yeah. Uh, uh, right. I mean, it's again, this is really troubling because the poll said that there should be a shift toward Biden in pretty big numbers among working class white voters, non-college educated whites in the Midwest. And that hasn't materialized. That's the same exact error that we got in 2016. Um, uh, now, it's not entirely uniform, right? Because the Florida error is p- playing on some sort of undersampling with Trump-leaning Hispanics. Uh, maybe it's a sort of Latin American po- a population problem with, with the polls not sampling enough of them, or maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe the polls are sort of missing low social trust, social trust voters or um, some other theory. But um, uh, it, it looks to be a pretty uniformly bad performance for the polls. Again, the average bias, not not absolute error, average bias was two and a half points. That's happening everywhere. So we were supposed to have a reckoning in the polling industry after 2016, and we had a bit of one, but we went back to, to fairly similar um, processes. People are again predicting another reckoning um, in the industry. I know you're working on a, a book about the, the, the history and state of, of polling. Um, wh- where do you think we, we are? Is this a crisis? Uh, is, is there a sense that, that there will be uh, a lot of changes by the time we get to 2024 or 2022? Or is this the same kind of situation where people are doing the best they can each cycle? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> You'd have to ask a pollster what their uh, proposal for uh, changing the methods are. Um, clearly, what they've done over the past four years hasn't worked, uh, so they need to think about new solutions for uh, polling Americans or for at least trying to weight their data properly or figure out what uh, exactly is going on to cause an undersampling of Trump voters, even when you have correct demographic or even political benchmarks in the case of some polls that weighted by the past vote or um, or sample voters based off the voter file, even those overestimated Biden's vote share. Uh, now we do need to wait for you know some results, right? It's still early, so it's kind of you know we have to we're still in this sort of early uh, sort of almost like twilight zone territory with uh, quantifying the polling error exact <clears throat> exactly. What are we looking for that would change us? Like you know if if say. Biden is just doing fabulous in California and ends up, you know, near much closer to the eight point national. Would that change how we we think about it? Or what do we need to know uh, more about the the polling era that we'll learn in the next few days? Yeah, I'm not so sure about the California thing. I mean, if national polls are like good, then whatever, it doesn't really matter because we need state polls to be good, too. And so lots of those national pollsters who are doing state polls evidently still have problems, even the big media pollsters. Um, uh, but I, sh- you know, I should note, like our our 
election model had Biden winning nationally by about eight points, whereas the national polling average themselves had him closer to nine or ten, I think. Uh, so uh, there could, you know, there could be um, something about the population of state pollsters who are doing, who are conducting state polls, um, that have sort of fig- figured out how to pick up on the Trump voters in a way the national polls are going. But uh, I wouldn't be looking to the California numbers to benchmark. So so what we really need to know, right, we need final counts in the Midwest. We need to know if it's a bare margin uh, for Biden in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, or if it's going to end up closer to two points. Now, Wisconsin is, is sort of final now, so it looks like it'll be one point unless the re-canvassing or recounting turns up a bunch of extra voters. Um, and, uh, but, but, uh, but I don't think it's going to change the overall story here, right? I think we know enough at this point to know the overall trend, which is that we're seeing an undersampling of Trump supporters, even if you control for your demographics. Um, that's a that's going to be a problem no matter how how things shape up. Well, and not necessarily specific to to Trump voters. I mean, it seems like I, don't, I know you said you don't do the Senate model, but the the the. Uh, the polling miss was pretty widespread, Senate, House, state legislative districts all, all across. So, I mean, does that point us toward more explanations about the, the samples um, uh, versus the, the, the way they answer questions? Um, are there any hints from, I guess, the, the pattern being kind of uniform undercounting of Republican support? So are there are there some hints at better technologies? Um it looks like the again. It looks like the error happened across poll modes, poll populations. The only the only bright spot really is that lots of the polling firms that uh, said they were discovering shy Trump voters or some sort of um, they they were finding undercounting problems ahead of time look to have stumbled upon something now. Right, whether or not their methods of calling people or adjusting their samples the right way to do it, there's clearly some truth to the argument that the traditional pollsters uh, are doing something wrong. So maybe we do need to move away from live call or low response rate to phone surveys, which I should add, lots of traditional phone polling firms are doing. The Pew Research Center does most of their work online now. But uh, even the online polling panels like YouGov, who say they get representative samples uh, and, uh, based off of you know selecting demographic and political characteristics of the respondents, seem to have missed something here. Um, it's unclear if it's because of a late shift or something else, but there's an issue, right? I don't want to be too too doomsday, but doomsday about it. But um, it's kind of where we are. So, so one of the early stories, um, some people th- think it's being over- overplayed, but but I don't. Is that we're we're seeing some real racial depolarization. That is, uh, white voters uh, seem to be moving more in the Democratic direction um, than minority voters and Latino voters, at least in Florida and, and South Texas, seem to have uh, moved a bit uh, toward toward Biden. Now, there were some hints of that in the pre-election polling, um, uh, if you use the same surveys comparing 2016 to 2020. But I, I just wanted to get your comment on if there was, beyond just the undersampling of white working class voters, the or not undersampling, the, the miss on the the move that they would make uh, toward Biden. Uh, what what should we conclude so far about this miss, or was it a miss on Hispanic polling? It's unclear to me whether it was a miss, uh, right? Uh, on average, in Florida, we had Biden up a point or two, uh, but lots of the Hispanic crosstabs of the polls themselves, which of course our model doesn't see the crosstabs, it only sees the top lines, but those crosstabs indicated a shift toward Trump. So they're at least right hitting the right direction of the polling shift. Um, the 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 issue, well, okay, so one more thing, right? The polls also picked up on a pretty big shift toward Democrats among college-educated whites. Uh, but it seems like the error is coming in the, the, the miscalibration of Trump support among the working class white group, right? Uh, so if if the polls are broadly right on a suburban or college-educated white movement toward Biden over the past four years, and they're uh, close to right, uh, at the very least nationwide, and probably even in Florida too, among or about a swing toward Hispanics, um, then it really the the best explanation for the error is the Hispanic, or sorry, the uh, the white non college educated 
uh, errors in, in vote share for Biden. And the polls did see high turnout, and we did get high turnout. Um, but uh, of course, it's always been difficult to um, try to poll who is a likely voter. This year, we had an additional complication of this very big partisan split in early versus day of uh, voting. Is there anything to conclude so so far uh, about that? Um, does that just increase uncertainty in the polling? Um, does it change the d- dispersion across the polls? Um, you know, what, 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 how big of a source of error was that potentially? Yeah, there are two things, uh, that I've, that I've been thinking about, uh, as, as far as the increase in early vote goes, the first is it makes our likely voter filters, uh, harder to calibrate, right? You know, historically, uh, people have maybe been okay at gauging their likelihood to vote in person, but maybe they've overstated their likelihood to cast ballots, um, uh, by mail or early, or, or and maybe there's a partisan component to that. Uh, we'll have to do some more digging, you know, some real research into how uh, different pollsters are doing their or conducting their likely voter filters to really know if certain strategies uh, are worse than others in sort of a pandemic election year. Uh, but the other thing to note is that there are uh, other externalities with polling error that come from increased. Uh, mail ballot usage besides the actual methodological component. And that is that there are a bunch of mail ballots that just aren't being counted in Georgia right now. Um, And and that could, if they are all disproportionately Biden, that would push the polls uh, toward uh, the incorrect direction, right? Um, If that's happening in other states too, right? Not only is it normal... So you you wrote a pre-election article about about this, um, sort of foreseeing that... um, uh, looking at the rejection rate, but the rejection rate kind of includes ballots that uh, came in after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. So is that something that you sort of see happening? Um, there there are reports and, and conspiracy theories, but some uh, reasonable <laughs> reports about the mail being uh, slow and some of those ballots not making it. So did, did that prediction come true? Uh, yeah, to the extent we predicted it, uh, sure. Now, you know, we've, we found that in the more diverse states, um, especially that aren't uh, equipped to deal with mail-in or early voting, that they would be uh, biased toward the Democrats. I'm not sure to the extent that applies to Florida, uh, which just seems to, or sorry, to Georgia, which just seems to not be counting or to delivering its its mail on time. Uh, uh, but uh, it, you know, it could be biasing. It could it could explain one point of the two or three point miss. Uh, in the polls, or perhaps three or four point miss in the polls, but uh, it's certainly not the uh, uh, the safe ticket out uh, that the pollsters are probably hoping for. Now, a lot of people yesterday and, and in the weeks uh, leading up to the election were looking at this early voting data, uh, looking at modeling from the voter file. Um, did we learn anything from that process about the likelihood that you're going to get some different information out of that than, than the polls? Was it a mistake to, to make predictions based on uh, party registration turnout rates um, uh, based in that uh, early voting data? Yeah, so... I'm torn. Historically, the early vote tells us nothing. Historically, the trends in registration tell us nothing about an election. It, j- it could just be the case that this time they happened. Uh, the registration trends in Florida, for example, just so happened to point in the right direction, but it's not a safe bet in the future. So I can't really talk about how much we sort of know from that. Um, the early vote trends, I think, if anything, pointed in the wrong direction, right? And or at least in how people, maybe this is just a byproduct of how people were interpreting the, the numbers. But in Texas, the early voting trends were uh, a source of massive enthusiasm for Joe Biden and for other Democrats, right? When the pollster, when the pollsters had it right in saying that it was a likely Trump victory. Um, so, so maybe there's also some room for calibration here, right? We're talking about uh, one to two standard deviation polling error. That's still not like a cataclysmic failure of the polling industry. Uh, it's concerning because the errors are pointing in the same direction as they were last time, which hints that there's sort of troublingly little progress being made to address these problems. Uh, but so if we'd we're, had probably, the same, we're probably still if we'd at had, a point where polls are better for uh, handicapping elections than other sources of information. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, if we'd had the same size polling error in the other direction, there probably wouldn't be quite as many calls for fundamental right. change. Yeah. So I guess one source of the problem in the early vote is if people tell you that they've already voted, um, how do you weigh that versus people they are going to say they're going to show up on, on election day? Um, another is, I mean, we just had such a partisan split in early voting. Um, one, one theory I had is that maybe it was just the case that if you were a Democrat and you hadn't voted early in a state where you had lots of opportunity to do that, then maybe that was sort of a worse sign than, than we were getting credit for. So sort of Republicans who said they were voting on election day were more believable. Yeah. Um, it's hard, it's hard to calibrate that without knowing the results from Pennsylvania in, in my mind. Um, but that certainly seems like the most likely explanation. So uh, I made a list uh, before the election of some things that might exp explain the polling error if uh, Biden, uh, if, if Trump were to win. Um, but I think we can still go through a similar kind of, of list. Um, so so <laughs> we've already talked about one of them, which is um, late rejected or, or unreturned mail ballots. So that's a little bit. We talked about them not getting there. I guess what about this? Um, you know, how big of a problem was it for Democrats that, that a lot of them were requested and, and there was many of those that were requested were not returned? Well, um, I'm I guess I'm more concerned. Well, the only data that I've really looked at is not with the return rate, um, but with the projection rate. And so that's troubling uh, because there are new partisan and racial imbalances in uh, rejected ballots this year because so many Democrats are voting or had voted by mail. So, uh, and that was big I, enough to matter in like a state like North Carolina, maybe. Right. So, so our so our modeling focused on um, the sort of demographic correlates of absentee or early voting or so mail-in voting in, in the case of North Carolina, but different uh, in in the cases of uh, of, of other states. Um, and yeah, you know, we found that uh, younger, uh, less white, and poor voters are more likely to cast their ballots by mail. They're disproportionately more likely to vote for Democrats. So, if there are higher rejection rates, it's going to hurt them more. But we only found again that that was a sort of the source of a one or two point bias uh, at most in the worst affected states. And those worst affected states are sort of democratic anyway, because they have so many younger, non-white and poorer voters in them uh, that tend to vote for Democrats. One of the other analyses we conducted, which was entirely separate, was the problem that we're sort of referencing now in regards to Georgia, which is what happens if the ballots never arrive, not necessarily the rate at which they're rejected after they get there, but if there are problems with the USPS or something. Now, that could have a much larger effect, closer to six so points or something. So will we learn? I mean, we have Pennsylvania and North Carolina where right now they can come in after um, after the, the election day and some states like Michigan and I guess Georgia where they where they cannot. So I guess would would that tell us that it was a big problem if uh, if a whole bunch of, of new votes come in uh, after election day or would that just tell us people follow the, the rules in their in their state? Yeah, I would be really interested to see an analysis um, across states of how many ballots were returned uh, or were sent out and, and didn't make it by election day. Uh, I imagine we can get some information by looking at states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that uh, th that allow you to return the ballot after. Um, but uh, I think we would really need individual state level information to really know. But right, I mean, if we found that there could be a six percentage point bias on margin if there uh, were rejection or non-return rates approaching five to 10%. Um, you know, crazier things are ha have happened this year and there was a polling error. So that's something to look for. Um, I guess one, one point we're kind of making is that it might not be safe to assume that the polling error was entirely the pollster's fault. Um, that might just be worth being clear about until yeah, we have an explanation. 2000, even when we just had in-person voting, um, part of the explanation for 2000 ended up being the, the butterfly ballot in, in Florida. Um, and so, yeah, if you have someone intending to vote for a Democratic candidate and they their vote doesn't actually uh, materialize, um, then, then that's the, 
they may have told the pollster correctly um, that they were voting. So yeah. one other um, side uh, on the turnout part is is the possibility of a Republican turnout surge. Um, there are some conservatives interpreting the election as a repeat of 2004, obviously not in necessarily the re-election of the president, but in the idea that these missing white voters came out, uh, that there was, um, you know, a lot of people who were not, who did not vote in 2016, who who showed up and looked more like more like Trump voters from from 2016. Um, how big of a source of error would you think that was? And is there a way to, to, to determine that or, or correct for that? Yeah, because here's the thing. Most of the pre-election polls showed that the switch from voting for Trump to Biden um, or most of the aggregate change in Biden's vote share versus Hillary Clinton's was from vote switchers. Right. So I'm thinking maybe they just reached a whole lot of Trump supporters who were willing to tell a pollster that they changed their mind and not a lot who were willing to say they were still supporting the president, which uh, I guess fits with these theories that they wouldn't they would they would be skeptical of admitting their support. Right. I raised this possibility online a few weeks ago. The question is, how explainable is that by our models? Right. Is this a normal source of polling error or is this something new, exclusive to our era, our era of sort of elite membership in the Democratic Party or a feeling of alienation among Republicans and sort of there's an identity component here, too, of course. Um, so so as you mentioned, um, David Shore or you didn't I don't know if you credited Shore, but he has this theory that it's about uh, sort of a untrusting um, survey takers that it's not just low education it's people who don't trust other people don't trust social institutions um who who don't respond to to polls and so that wouldn't be a shy trump voter in the sense that they're lying to pollsters it's just about whether you reach the people at all um and you know if we're talking about surveys where you know the phone pollsters are getting four percent response rates seems like a pretty big potential source of of error um I guess, how, how much do you buy that? And, and is there any way to correct for that? Yeah, right. So, uh, so well, first off, I, I was hoping we were going to raise this again. I didn't mean to not credit Shore up front. So, hey, if you're out there. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is one of the likelier explanations. Uh, and my contribution to this is that, is again, in putting it in terms of our models. So our fundamentals forecast, right? the prediction that we would make for the national popular vote based on economic growth and the president's approval rating was Biden plus four, not Biden plus eight or Biden plus nine. That at least attributes some evidence to this idea that the polls uh, were undersampling uh, Trump supporters or you know otherwise missing support for him, even if uh, they were getting, you know, conditioning on the national environment. Um Shore's explanation or proposed explanation for this is certainly appealing. I would really love to see an election model that took this into account quantitatively. And I imagine he has work on this. Uh, so that would be, I, th- I think, certainly worthwhile for us to see in the public sphere. You know, if we can ad- adjust our polls ahead of time, that's good for handicapping, but it also might help us. Uh, I mean, the point of forecasting is not just to handicap, right? So it will help us calibrate a lot of our expectations, at least journalistically academically as well. So uh, the only thing I can say is I think it's a great theory and I wish I knew more about it, but um, I haven't seen a whole lot of work. Is is it a self-fulfilling prophecy though, where we, we now have uh, people who are don't trust polls very much? Um, they, they might be <coughs> more likely to be Republicans or Trump supporters at this point. Um, they might be less likely to, to respond to polls next time as well. Um, the, the educational divide in the parties seems to be continuing. So are there reasons to expect that this, this is going to get worse before, before it gets better? I don't see any reason to think that's going to fix itself. So, yes. <laughs> so the other popular explanation, um, as you know, but but that hasn't generated a lot of acad- academic support is that there are shy <laughs> Trump voters, which I just want to distinguish I'm using to talk about people who are talking to a survey interviewer, but um, do not report that they are supporting uh, uh, Donald Trump. So who actively lie to the interviewer who either lie or say 
you know, that they're undecided when they're really supporting Trump. Um, maybe, maybe they're lying to themselves, too. I don't know. There's several versions of the theory. But to distinguish it from a sampling issue, uh, you know, this is you have them on the phone, but you didn't get the correct report. So I guess w- what is the state <laughs> with regard to that? And is there any reason to revisit that uh, in this election? I think the researchers pretty well debunked the idea that people actively lie on the phone about their political support. Uh, we have a whole lot of evidence that shows that non-response uh, is related to supporting your candidate. And so it's much more likely they're just not answering the phone than that they see some sort of social desirability bias in support um, for, for Trump and then actively lie to someone. Right. And the good news is if that's true, you can kind of fix the like waiting methodology issues Now you might have to invent some new source of polling. Uh, we're on the we're sort of on the verge of maybe wanting to do wanting to um, incorporate a lot of new methods or be more experimental. Right. And most pollsters are doing that. Um, if it's a methodological issue, you can fix it with those new methods. But if people are fundamentally just predisposed to lying about their support for Trump, there's not a whole lot you can do for that. So uh, I'm a bit optimistic. Maybe I'm a bit naive on this too, but it seems like the uh, the research is more pointing toward the methods fix than the lying psychological issue. So the, some of the research on the the, the kinds of things we usually use for social desirability bias, like a list, using a list of things or um, using prods that, that try to lessen social desirability bias, all, all of that doesn't seem to have produced much. Um, as you know, there are some Republican pollsters who want to move towards things like asking you who your neighbors are supporting rather than asking you who you're, you're supporting. I mean, are, is it time to, to analyze those other kinds of questions where we're not even asking people who they're supporting? Or is, is that unlikely to, to yield fruit? You know, maybe we do need new methods for detecting social desirability bias in detecting support for Trump. Um, uh, there's, it's always sort of troubled me that the evidence against social desirability bias in polls comes from polls, right? Comes from online list experiments or uh, split form surveys or split method surveys. I, uh, um, you know, maybe maybe the other way to do it is to do long-term recontact surveys where you're going to ask the same person the same question over and over again until they give you the straight answer. That's super costly. Um, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a survey methodologist, so I don't have the perfect answer here. But um, look, I think I think pollsters are going to be as inclusive to finding an answer as possible, right? Um, so perhaps it's not even something we're considering now. So one other uh, common explanation is just late breakers. Um, I think you you posted uh, that uh, the exit poll at least said that that people who claimed to to decide in the last uh, week um, went for Trump overwhelmingly, which was the same pattern as as 2016. Um, so uh, that might not be a source of polling error, but it's a source of forecasting error from the polls, I guess. Um, yeah. To, to what extent is that, uh, you know, should we credit that, that they were undecideds or third party supporters? They were real, but they didn't decide till the, the last minute. And if so, is, the, is there anything to do about that? The late deciding block could be one of, as you mentioned a second ago, it could be one of the sources where Trump supporters are sort of parking themselves in the survey until Election Day. But it's worth noting that the late deciding block this year looks to be like 4% of the electorate. It would have to... It, all of those voters would have had to vote for Trump to explain the air. And it looks much closer to like a 50-40 or 60-45 split than that. So um, one thing I'm hesitant of, though, is sort of letting pollsters off the hook for this, right? Uh, the 4% undecided rate couldn't, like I said, couldn't explain all of the air nationwide, certainly not in Florida. Um, I uh, I don't think that we should be comforted by that answer. And, you know, after, two, after 2016, um, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's so fashionable to rail against the polls that eventually, uh, you kind of want to be contrarian and just say like, oh, the methods are working. We can adjust the methods. This is sort of an intractable problem with polls. And that's true, but this year it really does look like there are long, longstanding methods problems with the polls too. It's not just that people make up their minds late. 
So one of the reasons that, that we do this comparison of the, the polls to, to the outcomes, on the one hand, it's not a, a great intellectual exercise to, to figure out whether asking someone beforehand who they're going to vote for predicts who they're, who they're going to vote for um, in terms of its theoretical import. But the re reason we spend a lot of time on it uh, is, is because it's kind of a, our potential for a ground truth about, um, you know, whether polls work. <laughs> so to, to what extent is that a good way of evaluating uh, survey research? Should we extrapolate from this a broader problem with surveys and public opinion data um, that, that we use in, in non-electoral uh, contexts? Yeah, so there are two answers here. The first is that polls are, public opinion polls match government benchmarks uh, across the board, this stuff like, do you own a microwave in your home, sort of administrative data, polls are able to replicate that sort of across methods. So that's reassuring. And it points, again, it points to your sort of implication here that um, using election calibration for polls is not the best way to uh, measure how worthwhile they are, how accurate they might be. Uh, Again, this year, it's really hard to figure out if um, there's an issue with our likely voter screens or if there's a broader issue with sampling voters. Now, it's probably obviously a mixture of the two, but neither of those matter when you're asking all Americans uh, or, or only, sorry, only one of those issues matters if you're asking all Americans what they support whether they support a policy or how they feel about like an upcoming war stuff that policymakers really need information on. Um, so uh, I, I guess I have a bit more faith in their ability outside the electoral context. Uh, certainly that's been historically true. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to a harsh, a poor reconciliation with, um, with the pollsters themselves. You know, if this is a systematic issue with the polls that, public opinion organization in charge of those pollsters uh, should uh, try their hardest to really suss out the truth here. So I'm hoping we get uh, something pretty hard hitting and reflective this time around. So one of the, uh, sort of hard to remember, but one of the initial critiques of the aggregators uh, and the, the modelers was that we were going to sort of deter uh, pollsters. <laughs> that doesn't seem to have been uh, the problem this year. Uh, we had quite a bit of, of state uh, uh, polling. Um, how, I guess, how do you feel about your, your role in that? Is this a, is this a good thing to encourage? Um, do we have uh, too, too much uh, polling at this point? Um, are, we, are we not learning anything from, from each additional one? Um, should we be paying, paying less attention rather than more? Well, we certainly have too many polls that aren't accurately measuring the race, right? Um, like I'm, uh, I have a firm belief, right? You mentioned I'm writing this book about how polls can uh, help influence democratic outcomes. So I have a firm belief that more data is probably better. It allows for asking different types of questions. It allows for averaging opinion, which is typically better than having one poll on one question. Um, so I will take as much data as I can get. And again, if you know these are just issues for horse race handicapping, then that's not super concerning to me uh, as someone who just wants to be able to you know tell policymakers what their or, or what the opinion in their district or the country says um but you know in the uh 24 hours after an election i think the one that's really going to be on on our minds is um the question that's going to be on our minds is do we really need all these polls uh or these, do we really need all these pollsters benchmarking the horse race if they're not going to increase our probabilistic accuracy or our um, or even just our opinion accuracy. So one of the reasons why I thought polls would be better this year is because we had so many national uh, high-quality pollsters sampling uh, opinion at the state level. Uh, that hasn't turned out to be true. So maybe there will also be a sort of media reckoning with the role of polling in horse race coverage uh, if these errors really do keep persisting. And like I said, they match the pattern of the 2016 error really well. So there does seem to be something wrong here. It's not just a, you know two random polling errors. So you've been uh, working with several political scientists on the on the forecast, um, and and you know sort of how it's developed within the discipline. Um, you mentioned that the the fundamentals based models um, 
will probably turn out to be pretty accurate. Um, the average of the, the those reported in PS, uh, which were all over the place, uh, it seemed like they'll be pretty accurate as they were um, before. Um, and we now have a few elections where the kind of state poll based alternatives um, you might argue haven't haven't fared so well. So in t in 2000 there was one, in 2016 there was one, uh, and this year there was one. And and in 2012, depending on how you measured the economy, our fundamentals model in 2012 was also better than the polls. So uh, sorry, you can finish your question. I'm just no, so that. yeah. So what should we <laughs> conclude from that? I mean, certainly there's people within political science who say that you know that. We should go back to our traditional forecasting. It's it's pretty good. Um, we shouldn't try to overstate the the kind of our ability to you know address electoral college versus popular vote splits, that kinds of things. Um, oh, versus uh, going I to the state. Don't election. agree with the latter bit, right? No. You know, in in the election forecasting context, if we're going to be making models to explain outcomes, not just behavior. We have to do it at the state level. That's just the institution we have. But certainly I agree with the overall critique, right? I mean, if um, if our job is to explain politics and polls aren't a useful tool for that, then there's a reconsideration of using them as a tool. Now, again, I don't think we're quite at the level where like polling is going to be in the future worse than the replacement level fundamentals models. It could, you know, there could be some sort of like Trump or modern GOP specific reason why uh, the polls are biased toward the Republicans. Like, uh, like Shore says, like we were hinting at earlier, if uh, there's an interaction with low social trust with party support, that's, you know, then you'll get the error. But if that fades away, uh, if we have sort of more class oriented politics, um, instead of race-based or race-oriented politics, maybe that would change and uh, the errors wouldn't be so correlated with non-response. Um, uh, so, uh, so I'm not ready to write off the polls in summary. But um, one thing that we said when we published our election model was don't doubt the fundamentals. And we got hammered for this. You know, there are allegations that we are overfitting our fundamentals models, that we are trying to take into account too many variables or sort of training them in the wrong way, but they are more accurate than the polls this year. And I think that's sort of worth emphasizing after the fact. So there was also discussion about um, correlations across states um, uh, during this uh, cycle. Uh, did we learn anything about that from the from the outcomes? I know last night there was the controversy over the New York Times needles uh, trying to draw in Florida data to uh, uh, predict uh, Georgia and, and North Carolina. So we sort of got a mini version of, of that. Um, you know, I guess on the on the other hand, we ended up with pretty close to uniform swing um, from from last time and to the extent that it wasn't pretty explainable. Um, so we didn't get these kind of tail crazy outcomes. So I guess what, what can we say about that that debate about um, the correlations across states in, in polling air? So, yeah, uh, worth orienting uh, around uh, that national error. Again, on average, polls are off for or uh, two, around two points on vote share right now, if we project the county level trends and the data we have to the rest of the counties. Um, uh, so that leaves the residual errors in Florida uh, and in the Midwest to be particularly large compared to the nation as a whole. So it seems like we're having, again, these canceling, these errors that are canceling themselves out where uh, the polls maybe underestimated suburban uh, shifts away from the Republican Party, but underestimated them toward the Republican Party among rural uh, white working class and Hispanic voters. And so what that means in the Midwest, uh, or maybe I should say in the Northern battlegrounds, as someone from Pennsylvania would not like to be called from a, from a, a Midwestern state, um, we're seeing pretty uniform underperformance closer to six points or seven points on margin uh, for the Democrats in Ohio, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, slightly less in Pennsylvania, depending how the counting happens there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess if you're training like a fixed effects model to predict 
how good the polls are. You're also, you're going to have a negative residual, it seems like in Texas too, which certainly underperformed expectations of our model. Uh, a, a six point margin um, is, you know, uh, uh, close or uh, actually it's, uh, so sorry, I misspoke. That would be, that would be better for Biden. Um, that'd be a two point overperformance of the uniform swing. And we'd probably have the same thing in Arizona and Nevada. So there could be this sort of correlated southwestern uh, swing going on uh, in the other direction. So, uh, but again, we are we, we should wait for final results before really tallying up those errors. Um, they should, our direction should be broadly right, but there could be some nuance we're missing. So someone listening live asked us to comment on Trafalgar. So um, <laughs> without being too specific, maybe just address this issue that we, we have pollsters that, that get it right, um, uh, but they, they would have gotten it right if they just moved their polls three points toward the Republicans on, on average. Um, they didn't release a lot of their, their methods, um, but they, they also don't you know, they, they are addressing many of the things that we, we've been talking about, social desirability bias sampling. So I guess how should we evaluate those claims and how do you expect that we will? Um, is ever, is he, he just getting a lot more business no matter what? Look, I, I watched a segment with Michael Smirconish on CNN with Robert Cahaley, the CEO of Trafalgar Group, where he said, like, either Biden's going to underperform on Tuesday and you're going to be the next genius of politics or you're the, like the dumbest pollster I've ever met. And, you know, not in those exact words. Uh, and it, it looks like people are going to give him credit for the former, probably. Uh, but in terms of actually evaluating the claim, right, there are some things about Trafalgar data that really point not toward the genius, but toward getting lucky with the numbers. The best indication is that the cross tabs are not uh, actually reflecting the voter results. So, uh, a, a, a Trump winning 40% of voters under 30, like Trafalgar Group said, is not happening in the exit polls. Trump winning 30 or 40 percent of black voters is not happening in the exit polls. It's closer to eight or 10 points, right? So if the numbers under the hood aren't right, I think that points to something, um, I, you know, I don't want to say nefarious, right? But this points to a different explanation with the top line of the poll. Uh, and I would just say, you know, uh, you know, Nate Silver's probably right when he says it's not a good sign if the poll is saying the same thing every single time. You can guess what it says before the poll comes out. That's sort of a hint that something's going on here. The cross-tab information is also a dead giveaway that um, they're probably just lucking into or biasing their data into Trump favorable predictions. And hey, it's paid off for them these past couple of times. So maybe it's a good business strategy, uh, but it's probably not a good public opinion. So I, w I guess I want to give you a chance to ad address the more skeptical uh, question, more skeptical reaction, which is, uh, you know, hey, you you said there was only a 4% chance of, of Trump uh, winning. It's, it doesn't look like that um, after today. Uh, I guess, how, how would you respond to that? It doesn't look like that's going to happen, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, so I think I think, again, it's useful not to think about the forecasts as just a probabilistic number. You know, the reason we attach the numbers, that's the best summary of the distribution of what we're giving out, but it could be misleading. So the better way to think about our forecast, at least this year, is that we said Joe Biden would win the election, even in the case of a severe polling error. That's probably what we're going to end up with, given that he secured Wisconsin and will very likely secure Michigan by the end of the day. And hey, he could even get Georgia, which the polls called, or at least uh, which the polls had him favored in, right? Um, and that would put him even closer, that closer to, I guess, 317 or so votes, 320 maybe. Um, yeah, that's getting back up closer to the center of the distribution, right? Uh, the average of 340 electoral votes is not that off. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it's like easy to hate on the forecasters after they get Florida so wrong, uh, or at least in the case of, let me back up this year, earlier on, uh, the election night, it was easy to hate on pollsters because it looked not only based on Florida, but also based on like the New York times needle in Georgia and North Carolina, that they were headed for a pretty bad, you know, six or seven point miss across the board. That's not really what we're looking at now. We're looking at 
Democrats meeting expectations in their polls, again, in suburban states with underperformance uh, in areas that's not going to end up being consequential in the Midwest. And then this like very weird sort of Miami day specific event in Florida. That's something that the forecasting models take into account. Uh, it's well within the historical or, or it's well within our uncertainty interval, our range of predictions. So if anything, the forecasting models added context this year that you would have missed if you were just inhaling polling data, which showed day after day after day an eight point uh, win for Biden nationally and really good margins in uh, the swing states. Uh, my own, my first methodological uh, sort of idea to tinker around with our model is to extrapolate uh, or to look at better extrapolating uh, trends over the past couple of weeks. So there was a noticeable tightening in the polls over the past couple of weeks to sort of slow down in the last couple of days, very similar to what happened in 2016 when there was a sharp trend toward Clinton and then a tiny we, spike. We blamed uh, that on the original Comey letter and the second Comey letter at the time. Um, but right. Maybe it's time to look back at that. Right. So maybe it's time to sort of, uh, right, now that we have two examples of this happening, it could be it could be a pattern now to, to keep our eye on. Um, but uh, I... I yeah, the forecasts are going to get a lot of hate for not having the exact combination right. But without them, I think we would have been worse off. The alternative, it's not clear to me, is better than not having them. So as you know, I usually have political science uh, uh, political science researchers talking about new uh, articles uh, on this, on this pa- podcast. And you have an ongoing relationship with uh, uh, political science. And there is a, a sort of a broader... Uh, I guess that the, there's a broader connection between data journalism and, and political science. The the day before the election and the day of the election, in in some ways, is kind of the the height of people's interest in things that might look like political science. So, <laughs> I, I guess to what extent are we harnessing that well uh, to to teach broader lessons about American politics? Well, I think conversations like this are a really good example of doing that. Right, we're having this conversation about polling, and uh, to some extent, you know, political science methods or voter behavior the day after the election, which we maybe wouldn't have uh, otherwise. Um, so I think it's incumbent on us to have conversations like this to really improve the public understanding of political science. Um, also, I should give a lot of credit for 538 here because they bring on people like you and tons of other political scientists to write articles uh, and takes even live on election night. Um, so that's a direct example of forecasters uh, elevating the profile of political science. Now, right, sometimes it doesn't pay off. 2016 is a pretty good example of political science models, uh, or at least some high-profile political science models getting the election kind of very wrong, uh, at least to the extent, or not only to the extent that they're forecasting the popular vote and not the Electoral College last time around. So uh, it's not always a fruitful relationship, but um, at least the political scientists that I talk to think that Having the very high-profile public political science forecasting symposiums and you know, members of public scholarship reflects well uh, on on the political science academy uh, in elevating profiles. So, uh, but hey, I'm uh, I'm not a political scientist, so I leave that up to you and your your peers. But you're a big reader, so what? I mean, what what should we be? Um, you know, what should we be? In, we've been talking about kind of how pollsters should react and and how forecasters should be, but but what are the big lessons out there that you you want to understand um, that this election seems to be bringing to light? So in terms of broader behavioral lessons, uh, I'll probably blog about this. There are two things that I'm thinking about. One, it looks like there's further geographic polarization in 2020, which probably goes against my expectations. Again, this could just be because of the polls, but it looked like... Um, it looked like the swing against Hillary Clinton, the swing from Obama to Trump was driven a lot by personal characteristics of Hillary Clinton that uh, it might not be a good explanation based on the swing, the further swing toward Trump in rural areas. So uh, that's worth dwelling on, I think. Um, uh, and then it's also uh, it's also worth dwelling on the uh, Republican Party's future uh, with sort of minoritarian politics, especially uh, of the ethnic variety. If Donald Trump can win, you know, 
30% or 40% of the vote in Miami-Dade County with the type of campaign, the type of rhetoric that he's had this year, that probably prompts a lot of reconsideration over how we thought uh, how we thought he would be punished for that. And if if suburban white people are the only, the only ones who have a problem with uh, the things, there was some of the rhetoric, rhetoric from the Trump campaign, at least to punish him at the polls. Um, we probably also have to reconsider right the the future of the party if they just keep holding on to the Senate and to uh, uh, pushing minority policy views and that sort of thing. So if the sort of cottage industry after 2016 was about um, racial resentment and um, uh, sexism as being drivers of, of the vote, um, I guess, to what extent was that a mistake? And to what extent will there be a, a do you see a new one out of this election? So it's unclear to me if it was, a mistake, or even that it didn't translate, uh, or, or even that our, sorry, let me back up. So I wrote this piece a few months ago saying uh, racism isn't so large a factor in support for Biden as it was in support for Hillary or or Trump in 2016 versus 2020, neither is sexism, right? Now, the areas with the highest concentration of sexist and racist voters, at least where it matters in the Midwest, do seem to have shifted toward the Democrat, like those polls would suggest. Uh, but if our inferences about how these traits play with voter behavior are based on polls and polls aren't accurately representing the electoral environment, maybe we also need to think uh, about whether or not that's accurately capturing voter psychology. I mean, now we're getting into sort of, we might be approaching like conspiratorial <laughs> territory here, thinking that this sort of branch of academia is like misfiring. Um but uh, if the polls if the polls aren't right at forecasting an election, it might be worth dwelling on whether or not they're right at explaining the behavior in that election, too. Um, so w- one final point on this, right? To go back to what you said, if the cottage industry after 2020 is about geographic polarization, um, I think uh, the coronavirus might have a lot to do with this. Uh, you know, to speak bluntly, there were terroristic threats to multiple governors this year from rural America because they didn't want the cities and the government like treading on their rights. However silly some elites might think those objections are or however silly they might be in, in reality, too. Right. Um, uh, if the Republican Party can continue to capitalize on that anti-elite sentiment, even when Democrats run a candidate like Joe Biden, who tries to cater to them in rhetoric and in the sort of air that he carries himself with, um, you know, it's, uh, well, two things, right? Again, it's worth considering how the Republican Party continues to thrive in our geographic system of representation, but it also uh, probably, at least it makes me really worry about uh, partisan antipathy starting to uh, really intensify with its geographic, um, it's, it's, it's geographic uh I've been up since three in the morning. <laughs> Geographic component too. So, but let's oh, let's end there because obviously we did have the the president last night say that you know we make complaints about the the votes needing to be stopped counting where he was ahead and <laughs> counted till the end where where he was behind. Um, you know, I guess how, how worried should we be? Um, on the one hand, we have a. It looks like the result is is more likely to go against Trump than than not, but um, you know there there are threats to democracy associated with uh, how elections are interpreted, uh, how elections are fought after afterwards. Um, so so where are we on that, and, and how worried should we be? Well, uh, this goes back again to something we were we were talking about this with this red shift earlier in in the conversation. Um, you know, you, your your listeners will know the political science pretty well on this, uh, but the the threat of violence against your partisan opponents when you don't get what you want out of your government is sort of at a re- at least a recent high. I guess we don't have a whole, or at least I haven't seen a, a too historical a, a view of polling on like uh, tolerating violence against Democrats if they win the election or Republicans if, if you're a Democrat and maybe the two-party popular vote goes a different way than the electoral college. Um, so again, it was, so it's at least a sort of modern high. That's concerning, right? Especially if you have a president who stokes 
those divisions for his own personal gain. Uh, if if what we're predicting happens and Joe Biden wins the presidency, I'm probably more concerned about those threats than I would be if Donald Trump was still in power placating those voters. Now, there are some downstream effects, right? You might lose a little bit of his microphone, his bully pulpit, if he's not the president. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not conspiratorial to worry about these things. Um, but now I am sort of approaching the end of my skis with political science. So I'd hand it back to you. So we will uh, continue learning about the election in the days ahead. I want to encourage everyone to um, subscribe uh, to, well, The Economist overall. I'm a decades-long subscriber, but also uh, the Checks checks and Balances uh, newsletter uh, that Elliot puts together. Um, And uh, uh, we'll look out for the book on polling. Does it have a name yet? It's called No Margin for Error Tentatively. All right. We'll see if no margin for error. We stick with that uh, by, <laughs> by next year. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us on uh, Light uh, Sleep. And uh, everyone else, we'll see you uh, next time on the Science of Politics. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Pleasure.